Welcome back to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces shaping investing. I'm your host, Jack Aldrich. At the start of each year, the BlackRock Investment Institute sets three themes for the year ahead. When we created this year's themes, though, we could have never anticipated the coronavirus shock and the impact it would have on markets. With just a few months left in the year, how has the coronavirus changed our market views? In short, the future is running at us. The trends we saw as market drivers in the long term, namely inequality, globalization, macroeconomic policy, and sustainability, need to also be considered today. Today, we'll hear from Elga Barch, Mike Pyle, and Vivek Paul on why that is, and how our views have changed in light of this year's coronavirus crisis and market volatility. To start, let's assess where the economy is today. When the pandemic hit, global economic activity was put on pause, and the initial shock was sudden and very deep. But now that we're a few months in, we asked Elga Barch, head of macro research for the BlackRock Investment Institute, for her take on what we've seen since. Elga, now that we've seen some of the impact of the current downturn, how would you say this macro shock compares to that of the global financial crisis or other prior downturns? So the shock itself is certainly bigger than the global financial crisis, most likely bigger than anything that we have seen since the Second World War or the Great Depression. But what matters for financial markets is the cumulative loss in economic activity. And that is determined by the extent to which the original shock is propagating through the system. And given the very material and swift policy response that we are seeing, which is helping to build a bridge across disrupted income and cash flow streams, we expect the propagation of the original shock to be much more contained this time around than it was during the global financial crisis. And we can already see that the restart of the economy is getting underway. It might take some time before we make a full recovery back to the level of activity that we saw before the outbreak of the pandemic, and indeed even longer to make it back to the trend level of activity that we were on before the virus outbreak. But for the moment, the restart looks encouraging. And if anything, we see only some temporary local setbacks in terms of a pickup in infections. And we potentially also see some headwinds caused by the uncertainty about the continuation of the policy responses in some countries. You mentioned that global economic activity has begun to restart and that that's encouraging in part. What risks are we watching out for that might derail that or threaten the trajectory of that? Yeah, so as you said, there is a robust rebound in the making, especially in the early months after the social distancing measures were eased again. But there are some indication that that initial rebound is starting to lose a little bit of momentum in recent weeks. And I think there are two main reasons around it. One is the fact that infections have picked up again as activity restarted. So that could mean that consumers are more cautious again in terms of going out, visiting restaurants, visiting retail outlets. And secondly, there is still some uncertainty in a number of countries about the continuation of the policy support, which could mean that households as well as companies for the moment rather sort of prefer to build up 
some precautionary cash buffers, precautionary savings rather than go out and spend the money on discretionary items or decisions. So with those risks in mind, what signposts are we tracking to determine the health of the economy? Once we have assessed the size of the shock, we want to know about the restart of the activity for which we can track the interaction between virus infections, mobility, and then high-frequency indicators of economic activity. And what is key is the ability of countries to restart activity without seeing a material and broad-based increase in virus infections. Mm -hmm. That's the first signpost. The second signpost is regarding the policy stimulus, which is important to bridge across the shock period during which income and cash flow streams were disrupted. So it's important that the policy stimulus is sufficient in size, but also that it reaches households and firms. And then thirdly, we are looking for any signs that despite the policy response, there are indications of a buildup of financial vulnerabilities or any other forms of scarring that might dent productive capacities more permanently than we have currently factoring in. So lastly, what do you see as the potential long-term consequences of the coronavirus shock? I would stress two. One is the much closer coordination between monetary and fiscal policy, which we think amounts to a true policy revolution. That could mean that going forward, central banks will leave interest rates low for much longer than they have done in previous recoveries, that they will continue with their asset purchase programs, and that they might even embrace explicitly or implicitly a strategy of yield curve control. And then the second important economic trend is that of deglobalization. That means that we see an unwinding of some of the international division of labor, notably in the area of global supply chains. This could mean that we move away from the most cost-efficient global supply chains to global supply chains arrangements that are more resilient and hence longer term, sort of the more sensible choice. But what this also means is that the costs of production are likely to increase. And together with very easy monetary policy, this all could boil down to a material upside risk to inflation long term. Elga made the point that while the initial economic shock was deep, it's the cumulative impacts, or how global growth shakes out over time, that's most worth watching. As economies start to reopen, there's a lot of uncertainty, from the rate of reinfection to how long policy support will last. The world has changed, and that's led us to a new framework for our views on the markets. So how have our three themes changed since the start of the year? We asked Mike Pyle, BlackRock's global chief investment strategist. Mike, at the beginning of each year, we create three themes as part of our investment outlook. How have the themes changed since the start of this year? Well, they've changed a tremendous amount. So when we started this year, we talked about growth steadily ticking higher. We talked about policy basically on pause. And we talked about the need to you know, redefine resilience in light of late cycle conditions. Well, of course, the world has been transformed since then, and our themes are similarly transformed versus what they were just a handful of months ago. 
What are our three themes for the rest of 2020? So the three themes are first, activity restart. On the back of the historic standstill in economic activity as a result of the coronavirus shock, activity is restarting around the globe, but at different speeds in different regions and in different parts of the economy. This multi-speed restart is the first of our three themes. The second is policy revolution. In the face of the shock, monetary and fiscal policy have responded with an unprecedented speed and scale. But beyond that, we're seeing monetary and fiscal policymakers coordinating the policy effort together in historic, indeed revolutionary ways. And third, the theme that we're also focused on is what we call real resilience. And this is the idea that the coronavirus shock has accelerated a set of tectonic trends in the real economy. And these transformations around sustainability, around deglobalization, they're really going to define the investing landscape for the coming period of years, even decade or more. And investors need to be making decisions that are built to stand the test of those trends today and in real time, to build portfolios that are resilient in the face of these real economy shocks. Those are our three themes. I want to walk through each one of those themes individually and talk a little bit more about what it means for investors. Maybe we can start with activity restart, the first theme. Absolutely. So that theme itself, it's really meant to highlight that activity is restarting after the standstill from the coronavirus, but it's restarting at different speeds in different parts of the world. East Asia and the robust public health response they've had there, perhaps leading the way, Europe, maybe a step or two back from that. Emerging markets outside of Asia having some more significant difficulties around the public health dimensions of the coronavirus shock, more challenges restarting those economy. And the United States itself facing significant headwinds restarting. You know, I think coming into the period of the crisis where the contraction in economic activity was most acute, we had really one strong view reflected across the book, and that was to be up in quality and to be underweight cyclicality and value. And now that we've gotten past that, now that we're getting into the phase of this shock that involves the restarting of economies, we don't want to be as cautious on cyclicality. But we also want to calibrate them to the parts of the global economy that are seeing the speediest and smoothest restarts. So as a result of this, we've done things like close our underweight in value, close our overweight in involved. But in particular, we've zeroed in on Europe as a cyclical exposure, both by virtue of the strong restart in activity they're getting on the back of their robust public health response, as well as the significant uptick they're getting from the policy framework that both monetary and fiscal policymakers have increasingly put in place in the past period of weeks. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the second theme, policy revolution. Walk us through that in a bit more detail. In some ways, this has been consistent since the coronavirus shock first manifested itself and the policy response was taking shape. And the idea here was investors should be seeking out strong policy backstops. 
And that's true in a very direct sense. The Fed, the ECB have announced historic programs that back credit markets. And seeking out assets that have those strong policy backstops is going to continue to be an important theme and an important way of generating protected downside, but we think some ongoing upside in the period of time ahead. We think that the policy framework that has now been put in place in Europe is a particularly strong backstop to be seeking out. While in the U.S., we're a little more cautious. The U.S., for the early stages of the crisis, delivered the most comprehensive and forceful fiscal and monetary response. Looking ahead, especially into the uncertainty of the election, we see some risks around the U.S. policy response, especially on the fiscal side. And that, along with the greater challenges the U.S. is having on the public health side, has caused us to pull back our optimism around U.S. equity exposures to something more like neutral. And that's not a negative call on U.S. equities. We think they're going to perform in line with the rest of the world. But the belief that they were going to outperform, as they have through much of the year, we're more cautious on that from the mid-year forward. Our third theme is real resilience. What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is in a moment where rates have been driven to even deeper historic lows, when the policy revolution looks to be holding rates at historic lows deep into the future, and when inflation risk can potentially be ticking up over the next handful of years, nominal government bonds, those traditional diversifiers in portfolios, are less central to solving the portfolio challenge perhaps now than they have been. In some ways, the most high-conviction view we have in the portfolio is to be overweight, high-quality assets. And that's particularly true in the case of the equity quality factor. These are companies that have really strong business models, that have really strong financial metrics, strong balance sheets, strong cash flows, oftentimes in a commanding position within their sectors and really have both seen secular tailwinds at their back in technology and pharmaceuticals and consumer discretionary, but have also seen very strong resilience in their performance through the period of the coronavirus shock to date. I think the core of the real resilience theme, though, is looking out over longer horizons and looking at the total portfolio. This is the idea that resilience at the total portfolio level has traditionally been a financial concept, pairing risk assets with a duration asset like nominal government bonds that cushion the portfolio in the face of shocks. But in this moment, when the value of nominal government bonds and portfolios over periods measured over years is perhaps less than it's ever been, resilience needs to be rethought, and in particular, needs to be rethought along the lines of the profound transformations happening in the real economy globally. You know, as we've talked about, things like deglobalization, things like sustainability. And what that means is what we thought were going to be slow-moving, longer-term investment decisions that investors and asset owners had to make are really decisions that they're going to have to be making in the here and now. To take just one example, this concept around deglobalization, around 
the reversal of a lot of the trends towards the stronger integration of goods markets and financial markets over the past number of decades. Over the decade ahead, we continue to see the U.S. and East Asia rooted in China as really the two big engines of global growth, having a balanced set of exposures to those two key engines of global growth and doing so in a thoughtful, intentional way is going to be an important way that investors build resilience into portfolios, but it's going to be a different way than they've traditionally built resilience over the past number of decades. To sum it up, Mike mentioned three new themes for the year, activity restart, policy revolution, and real resilience. Mike walked us through how these themes play out in the near term, but he also mentioned why we believe that long-term trends are becoming more important today. Structural trends are being accelerated by the coronavirus. We turn to Vivek Paul, senior portfolio strategist for the BlackRock Investment Institute, to talk about how we're rethinking our views. So earlier we spoke with Mike Pyle about our shorter-term investment views. Among other things, Vivek, you focus on our strategic views, or views which span a five-year time horizon and longer. How do the themes Mike talked about apply to that time period? One of the critical aspects of our outlook is this idea of the future running at us. You know, strategic horizon trends have been supercharged. So this central idea around our views has just never been more relevant to building portfolios with a strategic horizon. And if we think about some of those key themes, you know, the idea of the policy revolution, the extraordinary measures we're seeing in monetary policy and in fiscal policy, this fundamentally shapes our strategic views. The path of government bond yields shifting lower, the idea that we might be approaching levels where they can't get any lower still, this has material impacts for the role of government bonds. We would hold less government bonds all else equal than we would have done before, but materially so. And also, the monetary and fiscal interlink is part of that policy revolution. It paints a picture for us of an environment where we could see higher inflation in the future. And that's why we like inflation-linked bonds. And the idea of this need for real resilience, which is another one of our key themes, that underpins, that drives our belief on a strategic horizon that Chinese assets, private market assets for their diversification potential, and at a more fundamental level, sustainable assets as well, are critical to strategic horizon portfolios. We also spoke with both Elga and Mike about the emerging restart in economic activity. How does that shape our long-term views? The economic restart, I think, is crucial, of course. But I think the thing we've got to bear in mind for strategic portfolios is it's the cumulative impact rather than the very near-term impact. So what I mean by that is the fact that the economy gets up and running now versus next month all else equal, actually has less of an impact on a strategic horizon. The only reason why that might not be true is if that additional month delay causes some structural long-term issues or debilitating issues for the economy. But if we assume that wasn't the case, we've got to remember it's the cumulative that matters. And let's think about this in the context of equities. Very simply, equities are just effectively a stream of cash flows going out into the future and we're placing a price on those cash flows today. And the point there is the plural. It's not just a cash flow. We don't just care about the next year. We care about the year after that, the year after that, the year after that. And critical to our view here is this idea that the cumulative impact is just materially less. It's a different order of magnitude than, for instance, that we saw in the global financial crisis. And that underpins our view around equity, our view around around credit, that these risk on assets still play a role in the portfolio, despite the fact that we've seen this lockdown and this extreme market move. That's really helpful. And I want to touch on some of the things you've already brought up, Vivek, perhaps starting with the role of government bonds. 
Historically, bonds have been a complement to stocks and portfolios as a way of providing diversification. But this policy revolution you've mentioned has pushed bond yields to record lows. And this has been magnified by central banks globally cutting rates in response to the coronavirus shock. How has the role of bonds changed and how are you thinking about that? So the role of government bonds has materially shifted for us. And there's a couple of things to say here. This is much more than just returns being lower. The fact that those yields have fallen means government bonds are more expensive. It means the forward-looking return might be lower. But the key point here is it's much deeper than that. And the reason is, as you pointed out in your question, Jack, I mean, part of the appeal for holding government bonds in the first place is this kind of risk-off behavior, what they might do when equity markets also sell off. And That is the thing that actually we really have to start to question now because of where yields are. Because if you were to believe that there's a chance that yields are not that far away from the lowest that they can go for nominal yields, for instance, the idea that yields can't get below zero in the US, then the critical point here is that there's a whole host of potential future outcomes where yields aren't falling when equities might be falling, that means the government bonds are not giving you that return that they previously did when equities are falling. And so it's a combination of those two things. It's the fact that the returns are lower, but also that kind of protection you're getting is just naturally going to be impinged by the fact that yields are so low because yields can't fall that much further, has a huge impact on the amount of government bonds we'd hold. And so with that said, and with bonds no longer playing as much of that diversifying role, where should investors be looking for diversification today? It's a great question. And the sad answer, the short answer is there's actually almost no asset that is a direct like for like. If you think about the last 20 years, you look at the role of nominal government bonds, like a consistently materially negative correlation or relationship to equities or risk on assets. And there's just nothing out there that plays the same role in the same way. And so the answer to your question is there's no one asset that does this. And we've got to think more holistically about the overall portfolio. For instance, the role that Chinese assets can play. Chinese assets increasingly in a world where we're kind of moving towards a sort of bifurcated state of affairs, the idea that there's a US-centric hub, there's a Chinese-centric hub, and more than ever before, they're a little bit disparate. That means that buying Chinese exposure is getting you genuinely diversified sets of cash flows, sets of returns, and much more diversified, arguably, in the future than it was in the past when globalization was at its peak and effectively there was just one homogenous single market. Mm -hmm. Another asset that could help is inflation-linked bonds. I think linked to this idea of the policy revolution, we believe that there could be a case that inflation is greater in the future than the markets are currently pricing. That would mean all else equal, inflation-linked bonds are part of the solution in replacing some of that lost resilience benefit that you're getting from the nominal government bonds. And private markets as well. Private markets give you the ability to shape deals and exposures. And the way to think about this maybe is, you know, if you were to go into a supermarket, just buy something off the shelf, that's like a public market. But if you were going and be able to kind of shape precisely what type of pasta you got or whatever it might be, that's more like the private markets. You have additional ability to shape those exposures, which means that you have an additional ability to shape the amount of resilience in your portfolio. But the final point I'll say here, Jack, just to kind of reemphasize this point, there is no one for one asset. It's more fundamental. It's more at a whole portfolio level. And this really gets to this idea about the real resilience, because this acts at a more granular level than just broad asset classes. Think about the post-COVID world. We might have material sectoral impacts, thematic impacts that you can't just summarize in one line item called US equity or European equity or whatever it might be. 
sustainability is a good example of this, right? So sustainability can act in different ways in different sectors and different regions. And we'd be silly to try and think that the way in which we position a portfolio is just to buy more or less of an overall group bucketed asset class because of these factors. We've got to go below the hood. And that's what we mean by real resilience. I'm glad you just mentioned sustainability because my next question for you was actually on that topic. We talk a lot about sustainability as a firm, and Mike mentioned how it ties into our theme around building real resilience in portfolios. How do we see the sustainability trend playing out in the long term? For us, this is crucial because what we've seen over the last few months has just been the tip of the iceberg in our view. This is investment risk first and foremost. And the thing to say here is that we are very firmly of the view that sustainability is a return enhancer. It's not one of those things where it's not going to harm your returns, so you might as well do it to be good to the world. It's more than that. If you kind of think about the flows into sustainable assets and products over the course of this last year, even though we've had an extreme sell-off in markets, that flow continued. That's just evidence here, we think, that this is really a structural sort of societal shift towards sustainability. And the crucial point is, if it's not yet in the price, as is our thesis, well, the return you're going to get is going to be enhanced by everybody else getting onto this bandwagon, everyone else seeing the light, everyone else getting involved with sustainable assets. The fact this is topical like never before means that arguably this is actually going to play out maybe not over decades, but maybe over a single decade, for instance, and the time horizon has been brought forward. Vivek, this has all been really helpful. And just to wrap it up, I wanted to ask, bringing it all together, What's one thing investors really need to know when thinking about markets in the longer term? I think the one thing I'd say is that right here and right now, the most important single decision an investor needs to make is to reconsider the strategic asset allocation that they have. It's the number one thing. Typically, strategic horizon decisions, portfolio construction, because it's slow moving, because it's long run, it's not as newsworthy. And people might think, well, look, that'll take care of itself. I'm going to care about the near term stuff. Now more than ever, this is the newsworthy thing, because all of the things we've talked about today, the idea of the policy revolution, the idea of sustainability, the idea of deglobalization and the role of China in the world, these are structural issues. These are things that have basically been supercharged and it's shifting the investment landscape. If you think about our personal lives, for many of us, buying a house is the most important strategic decision we ever take, right? Imagine you were someone with a long-term plan to upscale your apartment. You want to do it at some point in the future, but that day will come. You're not really worrying about it. It's going to happen in the future. And suddenly you and your partner discover that you're pregnant with triplets. You're not going to be able to kind of resolve this by just buying some wet wipes, right? You need to supercharge your plan as to where you're going to live. And this is really the same with COVID-19 and the impact of this shock. This is not something that you can do by tweaking around the edges. The whole thing needs to be reevaluated and it needs to be reevaluated now. The coronavirus crisis has caused us to reevaluate our market views. The pandemic has exacerbated inequality across income levels, race, and countries. It's exposed the vulnerabilities in global supply chains, adding more fuel to the fire of geopolitical fragmentation. As central banks and governments alike have stepped up to respond, we've seen the lines of monetary and fiscal policy start to blur. And lastly, it's emphasized the importance of sustainability, particularly around the role of corporations. As a result, we have three new themes for the rest of 2020. We are moderately pro-risk in our investment views, and we like credit over stocks. In the longer term, we see Chinese assets, private markets, and sustainability all playing a greater role. That's it for this episode of The Bid. 
We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N, 2DL, telephone, plus 44020-7743-3000, registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL, 230-523-BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.